Morning, church. Happy Labor Day. Really? We have a holiday that lets you take off a day in order to celebrate work. What can go wrong with that? So today is Labor Day, and uh, we're starting a brand new series it's kind of short, so I guess you'd call it a mini-series. We uh, have just finished uh, talking about Replicate, where hopefully what you heard is that our job or, or an extension of our discipleship is not just that we love God and love people and are uh, making disciples and making a difference, but that we are trying to bring somebody with us. That we, we want to help someone else love God, help someone else love people, help someone else make disciples. Uh, uh, discipleship is not complete until the disciple becomes the disciple maker. And to let someone else join us in making a difference. And so this month, we're going to talk about entrusted. We're going to talk about the, the time and the talent and the treasures that we have been given by God and, and how we are uh, responsible or privileged or, or whatever you want to call it. We are able to let those things be evident in our world as we sort of interact with a, a, a world that's fallen. And that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit today. So we call it stewardship, but let me set the table this way. How many of you are glad that college football season has actually started for real? Now, I don't understand the term week zero. Uh, I, I, I get it. We have a few sort of games, and, and then the real week started yesterday. And I am guessing that some of you show of hands, wore colors that represented whoever it is that, that you represent, and you would call yourself a fan. Anyone? Yeah, we were, Judy and I went to Lowe's. Her birthday is coming up, and I told her we could go get flowers. And she walked into the plant emporium at Lowe's and said, I want purple flowers and gold flowers. I, I immediately felt sorry for Georgia fans, because I can't imagine you walking into Lowe's and going, you got any black ones? <laughs> get the red ones, they're everywhere. Let me get some black flowers. And then I think about Oregon, I go, you're out of luck. <laughs> I don't know who has those colors. So we don't have any problem in our heads thinking about what it is to be a fan. Emotion rules the day. Logic is out the window. My alma mater lost in four overtimes to Liberty University of all people. And I guess that's a good thing. They're kind of a religious school. And my school is kind of not. Uh, Southern Mississippi has, uh, we, we're never really good. If we get good, we go on probation. 
And so it's just, it's fun to watch them, but I, I, would, I would admit that I'm more of a fan than a follower. If, if for some reason we're incredible, we had a great baseball team a couple of years ago, went to the College World Series, and I followed them a little bit more uh, emotionally. I, I would keep up with games and I would have score alerts. But the thing is that if I was a fan... I would keep up with them no matter how good they were or weren't. Uh, if, if I was a, a real fan, I would do that. Kyle Adelman wrote a book a few years ago called Not a Fan, and he was talking about us as disciples. And uh, the title of the book pretty much said it all. He said that fans are the ones that show up on game day. And they wear their colors, and they, 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 they may have a, a tailgate party, or, or, or they, they rearrange their day to watch a game on TV. But a follower never checks out. A, a follower never stops wearing the colors. A, a follower, and of course he was talking about discipleship. He said, I'm not a fan as a disciple. I don't just wear the colors on game days. I, just, I don't just wear the colors when I'm surrounded by people that think like I do. I, I, I want to be a follower, and, and I get where he's going. And the title of the book was great, and the rest of the book was okay. And that's where we're going today. What is it to give our time and think of it in terms of stewardship? Now, you guys are already going to sleep because he said stewardship. Oh, no, he's going to talk about money for the next month. Well, I'm not really. I'll I'll get around to talking about money because it's important. You spend on what you love. Many of you paid good money for that Georgia gear or or you went to a clearance sale to get the Auburn stuff, or whatever. You can get the Southern Miss stuff at Goodwill. And you, you invested in that. You, you, you said, I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to put my, my resources in what I love. And that's kind of what this whole month is about. Today I want to talk about our time Next week, Jeff and a couple of our mission partners that we support, Jesse Tobedoya and Brian Burt, are going to help talk about how we invest our talents, either here or in faraway places. Then on the, the third Sunday in September, I want to talk a little bit about our resources and, and, and how we allocate those. And then on the fourth Sunday, we'll have our State of the Church message and our, our fall uh, business meeting in the evening. And, and uh, I want you to set aside time for that as well. But today, I want to talk about our time. Now, here's where I want to go. Our time is spent in a balancing act between being devoted to our vocation and managing our occupation. You're, you're going to hear that several times, that, that there, is a, there is a distinct difference between a vocation and an occupation. Vocation comes from the, the Latin term voca, which means calling or to call. And so a vocation is that to which you feel called. You feel a draw. You feel a pull. An occupation is that which occupies your time, 
and probably gives you an income. At least, hopefully, the end game of an occupation is a paycheck or, or sustenance or rent. Whether you work in a construction site or a cubicle, it's, it's the same. If you're a, a student, that's kind of your occupation. If you stay at home with kids, that's your occupation. That's what occupies your days. That's what, that's what points you to a, a, a living or a sustenance. So today, I really want to talk about work. But what I hope you hear before we're done is that the end game is that our vocation expresses in our occupation So we don't have this compartmentalized life where I do the church stuff with the church language with the church folks, and then I do whatever it takes in my occupation to survive, to make a living, to keep my job, to do what I have to do. We we too often separate those two, and that's why I want to talk about stewardship. So if the word vocation comes from voca, calling. If the word occupation comes from occupy, that which you spend your time, why do we use this word stewardship? A lot of you saw, was it Les Mis that has the, the cute song, Master of the House, and, and the idea is that, that whoever uh, operates the house, whoever controls the house, they, they control everything in the house, but probably the owner of the house is somewhere else. The word stewardship comes from Old English, the 11th century, and it comes from a combination of the word sty, which means house, a pig sty is a pig house, and the word ward which means the, the person who manages it. A ward is, is somebody who, who, who keeps things going. So a sty ward, a steward, is the, the master of the house. It's the, it's the person who, who allocates resources, who, who, who keeps work allotments going, who, who makes the, 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 the machine run. So a, a steward is somebody who manages someone else's resources. And of course, what I want you to hear at the end of the day, that our vocation, that which we are called to do, we are are called towards a a discipleship, we are called towards a a life that God has for us. We are are called to a fellowship, not a fandom of of Jesus, and and in that calling, in that discipleship, we, we then allocate the rest of our time, the rest of our talent, the rest of our treasures towards that which pleases the owner, the, the, the one who has all of the resources to start with. So stewardship is, is us extending our vocation into our occupation. Now, a moment of truth here, and I I really do want to stop and have a a word of prayer for you, because I know that some of you are thinking about your workplace right now. Some of you are thinking about what you do every day and how mundane it seems to be or how unpleasant it is. You're looking for another job, or you don't have a job, and you would love to have an occupation. 
Some of you are thinking about the, the, the mean spirit of the people around you or the, or the expectation from your company that you would do things that are not so above board in order to keep your job. We had a saying in the car business, the one who does their job the best gets to keep it. And, and, and some of you are thinking about the workplace, and, and it's the most unpleasant thing that I could ever bring to mind. I mean, for goodness sake, you've got the day off tomorrow. You don't have to think about it. Some of you don't have the day off tomorrow. And you're thinking, why do I have a job like this? Why do I have to make a living this way? Why do I? Valid. That's what I, I hope to speak about today. I, I hope to speak about the, the, the way that we work and, and, and who we work for and the place that we work. I, I hope to speak into those with some, some winding through Genesis and then 1 Corinthians and then Colossians and then Ephesians and finally Matthew. Pray with me. Oh dear God, this is hard. I am so blessed because I, I get to meld vocation and occupation and it, 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 it comes together into the same place. But Lord, even in my workplace, there are some days that just feel like I'm surrounded by crazy. And how much more in a, a company that doesn't pretend to be uh, sacred in its goals or its purposes, how, how much more are people surrounded by crazy when they're teenagers working at a fast food place or a construction worker, a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a pilot, a mom who is the steward of her children. God, what I pray today is that you will give us perspective for those in the room, those watching online, as we think about erasing the lines between sacred and secular, between vocation and occupation, and we simply yield ourselves to you as stewards of what you have given us in the way of time, in the way of talent, in the way of treasure. We pray that we can extend our vocation into our occupation. And God, I will be the first to admit we don't always know what that means. Maybe it's in a reaction to somebody at work who is truly evil. Maybe it's in the willingness to put our job on the line when we are asked to do something that is not legal or ethical or moral. Maybe it's in trusting you that even the workplace is a place where you can use us to be salt and to be light, that they may see the glory of God, that they may see the good works and glorify you. God, help us to have a perspective. Help uh, people to leave here with a sense of hope, even in their workplace. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the assumption is that work is a thing. So far, so good? That's not a hard assumption to test. Work is a thing. God invented it. He was the first to work. He worked for six days to create all of this. Then he had a very short weekend. I don't know what he did on week two. But he worked. And he showed us how to work. 
And, and, and I want to kind of plan in your head that stewardship or, or managing our work or extending our vocation into our occupation, being entrusted with resources, that, that's, that's a thing. And, and God did that on purpose. If you're not real familiar, here are a couple of verses that kind of get you on the, on the right track. God created us after He created a bunch of other stuff. He said in Genesis 1, 26, let us make mankind in our image, first chapter in the Bible, so that they may rule over fish and birds and livestock and wild things and creatures that crawl on the ground. So, so we were given work. We were, we were told that we were different than other animals. We were supposed to, to be the steward of creation. So God created us in His own image. He created us, male and female. He created them. And then He blessed us. He said, Here, here's your work. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have babies. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish. And here we go again. And so work was something that, that God sent for us to do, sent for us to be. And, and, and this was before there was any sin in the world. I, I can only imagine how hard this had to be. He just created something perfect. You know how hard it is to mess up a new car, right? New car smell, new car, everything works. Well, he had just created everything, and now everything works. How hard could it be just to pick up an orange when you were hungry, to, 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 to just sort of cultivate what was already perfect? Many of you know that somewhere around Genesis chapter 3, a sin entered the human race through a decision that Eve had to make and then Adam had to make, and, and they were tempted by a, a serpent who said, did God really say, did God really pronounce, can you really trust Him? And in their actions, they kind of showed that they didn't. And so sin entered the world, and all of a sudden, work was different. Now, there are three questions that are kind of worth writing down. I, I, I've said these before. I'm, I'm fascinated with this early story because once sin entered the world, God did not sever His relationship with people. He, he, didn't, he didn't tell them He didn't want to be in their lives anymore, but He asked three very, very poignant questions that, that I would just pass along to you because I, I think they kind of fit our discussion today. Could, could, could you say these about our work, your work? When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing He asked them was, where are you? Where are you? And I think as we go to work, he could ask us that. Where are you spiritually? What's your connection? Are you, are you being driven by your vocation? Or did you sort of put that in a basket when you left church and now you go to your occupation and you're going to do whatever it takes to survive? Where are you spiritually? Where are you in terms of the relationship? And then he, I'm going to take the last two out of order, but he said, How, what have you done? And it's an accountability question. It's, it's us putting under a microscope our, our actions in terms of our relationship with the Father. And then he asked them, who told you? 
What authority are you working off of? Is it an earthly authority? Is it an evil authority? Who told you that it was okay not to do the things that I told you you needed to do in order to just, to just, just keep life perfect? And as we go to work, where are we? What have we done? Who is our authority? And so, all of a sudden, the whole climate of work changed, and they were kicked out of the perfect place into a not-perfect world, a, a fallen world, that same world that you and I live in every single day, and now there was a commission to work outside of the perfect place, outside of, of, of us being in here in church and feeling the power of the Holy Spirit and, and Robert and his team leading us in worship to where we feel the very Spirit of God, but we've got to go back out into that workplace. And so Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of the garden, and, and now they were told to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Okay, that was his work. And then his work changed. Look at the difference in the, the way this is, uh, is phrased. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So instead of putting him in charge to work it and keep it, now he had to toil, and that's the word the Scripture uses. It, it tells the female that she would have pain in childbearing. It tells the male that he would have to work by the sweat of his brow every single day in order to provide sustenance for his family. And so early on, this, this, this attitude towards work changed. And that's kind of why we need a Labor Day, right? And, and this, this, this idea of work, it became toil. And, and some have even said that, that verse 23 in Genesis chapter 3, it also has to do not just with making a living, but also how we impact the culture. I am sending you into a fallen world to work it to work the ground, to work the culture, to work the construction site, to work the courtroom, to work the classroom, to work your home. And it's not going to be easy. In my quiet times in the morning, I've, I've told the pastors, I'm, I'm kind of working through Ezekiel. And uh, I'm only about halfway through it, but, but after about chapter 6, I noticed something that that I hadn't seen before, and I got my orange highlighter as opposed to my yellow highlighter, and I started orange highlighting this phrase every time I saw it, this one phrase. And then I reminded myself that Ezekiel, as a backdrop, is set against the worst time in the history of Israel. They were about to be captured by an enemy army. They were all about to be indentured servants. They were going to be taken away from their home, possibly separated from their families, and this was going to last seven decades. They didn't know it. For them, it was forever. Somebody had attacked their city, burned their homes, plundered any resources that they might have had. The worst time in their history. You know what the phrase was? All of this is happening so that they may know 
that I am the Lord. All of this nastiness that was going on in the culture, all of the nastiness that might be going on in your workplace, all of the unpleasant people, all of the, 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 the feeling like I never get a choice, I never get a, a decision, I don't have authority, I have responsibility, I don't have authority, we know you can't do one without the other. Maybe it's so that they may know that He is Lord. Maybe it's an opportunity for us. Maybe it's an extension of what we're supposed to be about in the workplace. Maybe our vocation becoming our occupation is a testimony to those around us that when we don't react, when we don't succumb, when we don't cut corners, when we don't compromise, when we do remain positive because the joy of the Lord is our strength, maybe it's a way that we do what we do so that they may know that He is the Lord. So, moving on into the New Testament, we ask ourselves the question, okay, well, wait a minute. How does my work have any purpose? You, you don't get it. And I go, well, yeah, I, I, I sort of do. When I was a brand new Christian, my first, quote, real job was that uh, at uh, 16 years old, I was the person at the mobile gas station on Rockbridge Road in Stone Mountain, and for some bizarre reason, that owner allowed me to be the person who worked from 6 to 10 every night. I was the only one there, 16 years old. What could go wrong? And I remember being a, a fairly new Christian. I'd only been a Christian about a year and a half. And I remember somebody saying that the work I do is unto the Lord. The work I do is for the Lord. Or, or, or maybe Colossians 3.17, everything you do, let your work be for the Lord. And I, I worked really hard. I cleaned the restrooms even though nobody else was there. I painted the curbs because that's what you did at gas stations back then. I swept up. I, I made sure that whoever came in the next morning had uh, evidence that I cared about my dollar and 75 cents an hour job. And I, I don't, don't, I'm no hero. I can also tell you about another time I worked at a car place where I didn't feel that way, where if you were coming across the parking lot to my parts department at 4.58, if you didn't turn the handle on the door by 5 o'clock, I was going to lock it in your face. Because my attitude about work had been, I'm going to do just what's necessary and get on out of here. Purpose and validation. Well, you see my tagline, you can't have workmanship without work. How in the world would God address us? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's talking about sacrifice that we offer to God, and, and certainly work is something we can bring before him. And he said, you know, all things are lawful, but not everything is profitable. Not everything builds up. And I can only imagine that if you're coming across the parking lot and you need a battery or a solenoid switch, I'm standing on the other side of the glass door with a key in the lock looking at my watch, and you get 10 feet from the door and you hear the click and look at my back, well, that's lawful. We close at 5 o'clock. 
We don't do business after 5 o'clock. Don't have to. Not expected to. Don't get paid for it. But it doesn't really build you up, does it? Doesn't really help you. And if you knew that I was a follower of Christ, that I was trying to bring my vocation into my occupation, you could rightly criticize what I just did. Because it has purpose. He says, all things are lawful. Not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but for the good of the neighbor. Brett McCracken wrote a, a book called The Wisdom Pyramid. And, and in that book, he said, we are, we are in, living in a time where we have too much information and it comes too fast and everything is filtered by what's in it for me. Do all things, not for your own good, but for the good of the neighbor. And then in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all things, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. That would be radical if we approached our work with that theme. I'm telling you, cleaning restrooms at 9.30 at night at the mobile gas station fell short of glamorous. There's a lot of things that you do, some things that you're asked to do, that it's hard to see how the glory of God is in this. Some of you students have teachers that make the classroom a miserable experience. Some of you who stay at home with kids, you think nobody hears you, nobody understands, nobody would rescue you from this, 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 this all-the-time thing. But what would it look like if we did all things, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus? Or in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, here's the purpose, here's the validation. You are God's workmanship. The word there would translate easily to magnum opus. The crowning work of an artist or performer. The thing that they're all known by. What a radical thing that the guy who goes to work every day, the girl who goes to work every day, the student who goes to class, the construction worker, the the lawyer, the doctor, the rocket scientist. You are his magnum opus. And he has placed you strategically as a steward of your vocation by taking it into your occupation. He says, you are his workmanship. You are created in Christ to do what? Good work. The works that God prepared before the beginning of time, that you should walk in them. Let me close with one more story. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Some of you kind of heard me say that last week we looked in Matthew chapter 5 at the, this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, this, this sermon, the, the, the magnum opus of Jesus' preaching. And in that he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And, and he gave us some instructions as to how we would treat each other. But towards the end of that sermon, he began to point out that as we live in a fallen world, life is contrasts. 
There are people that want to live in such a way that their vocation, their calling to Jesus is operational, and there are people that really don't give a rip. They live to please themselves. And he set up four stories in in this last part of the sermon that all talk about those contrasts. He he starts off in, in chapter 7, verse 12, talking about the golden rule, whatever you wish others to do to you, you do to them. Then he said, a tree is known by its fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. He's talking about contrasts. And then he says, at the end of time, there will be a moment when, when some people come to God and they say, man, I'm glad life is over. Where's my place? And he says, who are you? I don't know you at all. And all of a sudden, it will be revealed that, that the contrast to those who, who, were, who were driven by their vocation becoming their occupation, they, they just pretended in lots of areas of their life, and God sees through all the pretension. But then he tells a story. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, again, the contrasts are coming out. Both parties in the story hear Everyone who hears these words of mine, they all heard that, that, that God had a plan to deal with our sin, that God has a plan for His kingdom, that His plan involves a, a calling. He draws us to Himself to be forgiven of our sins and to be offered a, a chance to repent and, and eternal life in heaven. He, he gives that. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus said. Then He sets it up. He says, they're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Leave down a few verses, and the foolish man, verse 26, built his house on the sand. Well, in Israel, there, like here, if it's very, very dry, sand becomes very, very hard. If there's no waves coming in, if it's just sand, the, the sun can bake it and make it seem like concrete. It can make it seem so hard that you go, well, let me skip a step, and instead of going down to the bedrock that's under this, I'll, I'll just build on the sand, because I'm after it's, it feels like concrete. You can hardly drive a, a hammer into it. So uh, uh, the, the foolish man builds his house on that sand, thinking that it will remain in that condition all the time. So the contrasts are set up. Both hear the words, both build a house. Uh, Apparently, they build a house in the same location. Both houses, when they're all done, look alike. There appears to be a a similarity about them, maybe one of those cookie-cutter neighborhoods where every third house is the same. And so there was a a commonist, but Jesus is setting up a contrast. He says, we don't really know until we realize that we're in a fallen world. We don't really know until we're with the nastiness in the workplace. We don't really know until day after day after day there's drama with the kids. We don't really know until we get the really bad teacher and we realize for nine months we're going to be in that class. We don't really know until the, the, the waves begin to pound. We don't really know until the the storms blow and the the sand begins to soak up the the evidence of the the storm. 
And then all of a sudden, the foundation gives way. What's the foundation in the story? Our vocation. Our calling. Is our foundation, is our, is our vocation built on the fact that we know that we're sinful, we're broken. We, we got nothing to offer, and He offers us everything, and our dependence is on Him alone. I can't go to work without you. I can't stay at home another day with these kids without you. I can't go to school without you. I can't go to the construction site without you. I can't tolerate that guy in the next cubicle. He smells bad. He talks ugly. God, just rapture either him or me. And, and, and our vocation is the rock that we build everything on. The, the, the rock is something that, that, that we talk about all the time and refer to Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, on Christ the solid rock I stand. My daughter called that Daddy's Song. Because that's the song I would sing to her when I put her to bed. Not because I wanted her to know that on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, but it's the only song I knew all five verses to, and that's how long it took to get her to sleep. But the truth is there. On Christ the solid rock I stand, that is my vocation. And my vocation has to be carried into my occupation, and that is a stewardship of my time. Two questions I want to ask you, and then I'm going to pray. One, have you given yourself to God? Have you answered the call and made Him, Jesus, your vocation? Is that the voice you hear? And number two, have you given your work to God? Have you refused to compartmentalize your life as a disciple and say, whatever it takes, my vocation is going to carry into my occupation. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all that you're about in our lives. Thank you for the privilege of work. God, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we get our identity wrapped up in our work. And Father, I end up being a pastor who happens to be a follower of Christ rather than a follower of Christ who gets to be a pastor. Same thing happens all around us. Students who are students first and followers of Christ next. And that, that's just too hard. Help us to flip that around. Where when somebody asks us, what do we do? We tell them we're a follower of Christ. And I happen to be a student. I happen to be a teacher. I happen to be a CEO. I happen to be an accountant. I happen to be a laborer. Instead of, what do you do? Well, I'm a laborer and oh, I go to church too. Help us, God, to flip the script where our vocation drives our occupation and that in that place we can be salt and light. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.